Whether you're starting a game or starting your day, you need to pick a starting lineup, and you're going to want the starter from Jack Black. Loaded with the superior skincare the pros love, Kings fans can get the starter for just $10, shipping included. Available exclusively at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB, the starter has four of Jack Black's best-selling skincare and shave products, plus a full-sized intense therapy lip balm, SPF 25, in natural mint. Here's to the winning combination for 2022, the LA Kings and the starter from Jack Black. $10 plus free shipping, available at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB while supplies last. You're listening to an LA Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit LAKings.com slash podcast. You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the LA Kings. Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. I am Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings Men. This is it, guys. The season finale. The summer is finally over. The next episode you hear will be the first episode of the new season where the LA Kings will uh, send a contingent up to San Jose for the rookie face-off. We've got a bunch planned for that. To wrap up this offseason, though, we are taking one final look back at the 10 questions we asked at the start of the offseason. And when we originally recorded that, Mikey Anderson had not yet signed his contract. So we wound up recording a little addendum. It was easy enough to replace the original conversation we had about it. Uh, But just keep in mind, for the rest of the episode, when we recorded it, there was no Mikey Anderson contract extension. It is the final episode of this season, what I am calling episode 15, for no real good reason, (laughs) of uh, All the King's Men. All the King's Men has not existed for 15 years. But joining me now, Zach Dooley. How are you doing today, Zach? You're calling this season 15? It for my own the personal. Wow. I mean, it's I don't really call it season 15, but in my personal like naming convention, you're like a, my, like a my, hotel. You just skip the 13th right. floor out of luck. Sometimes there's no like 11th floor. There's well, there were like no first a, floor. So yeah, it's 15 seasons. There were four and a half seasons of the Hockeywood Insider, uh, and then I'm adding those to the. So for my purposes in my files, it's season 15. It's just like a relocation of a franchise. Like they they right. keep the history exactly. of the previous location. And now you're on season 15. In my arena, I still have the Minneapolis Laker banners yep. and I still yep, count exactly. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so for this episode, Zach, you and I have been talking about it for a while. We're going to take a look back at the 10 questions we asked at the beginning of the offseason. I'm assuming you are the same as I am in that when the offseason started and we were planning out the summer, I assumed we'd have answers for all 10 of these. Yeah, we, for sure. We do not. Right. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> thought that. You know, certain ones might shake out differently than they did, but mm-hmm. we might be carrying over one of these two, one, one or two of these questions into the 10 questions entering training camp. We most likely will. So let's just start off. Uh, as always, this one is my personal favorite is not the right word, but in fact, I don't like it at all. But I feel like it is probably the most under discussed um, amongst most uh, fans and most conversations I see. And that question is, what will the rest of the Pacific Division do in the offseason? I guess we'll just do it. Do you remember what we thought that any of these teams would do? Because I don't remember at no. all what we said that we thought these teams would do. I don't, I mean, that's so that's I probably should have listened back. Well, I, I did not do that. <laughs> no, I didn't either. And ultimately, you know, the, these these episodes need a better name because the, the point is always not to provide answers to the questions or even predict the answers to the questions. The point is just these are the issues that are unresolved that once they are resolved will shape the future. So the question is, what will the rest of the Pacific division team? Do you want to start with the teams that we're not worried about as threats for the upcoming season? It's a bold prediction to make in <laughs> September that a team sure. would not be a threat, but we can, maybe we start from last in the standings last yeah. year to first. Well, okay. I like that one. All right. So starting out with Seattle, they made some minor changes, but nothing that I think will vastly improve their fates this year couple really good you could probably call them like secondary core forwards you get uh burkowski from colorado um bjorkstrand from columbus both good players but also not guys you think are you know marquee needle movers like you know johnny gaudreau to columbus type player um good moves uh we saw that last year the, the vegas model was not replicatable in any way um what they did at the expansion draft versus what Seattle did, very different. We saw Seattle fall into what most expansion franchises did in the past, which is, you know, bottom of the standings finish. Um, but a couple exciting prospects that they got in the draft, uh, namely Shane Wright. But nothing that jumps out as being a 
move that's going to take him from eighth to third. Not this year. Yeah. Maybe three Building years for from the now. future, right? right. But yeah, yeah but not nothing that in 22, 23 jumps out as like this team is going to be 40 points better. Right. Next up, uh, San Jose. Uh, I'm not going to suggest that they are tanking in the way that Chicago Blackhawks are, but restructured front office, new gym, new coach, you know, Brent Burns gone. Uh, not sure what to expect from them, but not expecting a lot. A difficult situation for a new front office to inherit because, as you know, like that team was good for a long time, and they find themselves now with a lot of players who are on the, maybe the wrong side of 30 but are locked in at large cap hits for several years. And when you're not, when you have those players but you're not a contender, it's a tough spot to be because you look at Brent Burns. Brent Burns is still an effective player, and the trade that Carolina made to get him shows that. But at the cap hit that he's at, like the Sharks need to move him and a couple more of those hits to truly begin the rebuild, um, which is looks like the direction they're going. So I think that they made the first step in doing that, but they probably have a bit of a longer road ahead because they were committed to winning for so many years and signed so many of those core players to these longer-term deals for so many years. I think one of the biggest uh, handcuffs that teams give themselves is lack of flexibility. And the Sharks have clearly begun working at Perfectly giving worded, themselves yeah. more flexibility. Uh, next up is Vancouver. And I actually, well, I guess let's put a divider there between San Jose and Seattle and the rest of the division. I guess we're moving into like bubble teams now. Wasn't Anaheim below Vancouver? Oh, yeah, year? you are correct. Yeah, yeah sorry. Um, Anaheim, yeah. So Anaheim, there are some people in this office who are really high on Anaheim. I don't know what to think of them. I think they've got some... They have some very exciting young players, mm-hmm. but those exciting young players are 19, 20, 21, which is maybe a little bit early for them. They added a couple of veterans. They got Ryan Strom on a longer term deal, John Klingberg on a one year deal. But I think people forget that Anaheim traded Josh Manson, Hampus Lindholm and Ricard Raquel, all top four defensemen slash second line forwards at the deadline. And they got no NHL help back for those players. So I think. The Ducks have some really exciting young players that we've seen, um, but it does feel like they're still in the earlier stages of the process than, say, um, some other teams might be. Plus, they lost Ryan Getzlaff, right, who yeah, who didn't have many goals last year, but still had like 40 assists. So they've, they've lost a lot more than I think people think if you go back to the deadline. The Ducks, in my mind, are the like perfect poison pill of sports teams right now in that if everything goes it like if every if on their ballot goes the way it you know best possible case scenario yeah. they could win the Stanley Cup i could see that john gibson gets incredibly hot their decor you know is effective and lives up to every single one of their you Thought know ceilings. last year for like 3 months right? right like they were checking almost all those yeah. boxes and they were in a playoff spot yeah. zegris terry you know all their young forwards explode and have you know flourish at the absolute peak of their ceiling. But but how often does everything go right for anybody in any setting? Right. Much less an NHL team. So I I wouldn't be like stunned jaw on the floor if they made the playoffs. I wouldn't be stunned jaw on the floor if they finished eighth in the division. Wider a wide range of outcomes. Yeah. And a, a contender is within a reasonable stretch for that team. But also yeah. you look at the players they're counting on, very young, um, and probably could use another season or so to have experienced to get yeah. to that point. And it's the Ducks, so we hate them and we expect yeah, exactly. them to fail. Yeah. <laughs> then it comes Vancouver, a team that, you know, if the season were 10 games longer, I fully expect would have made the playoffs. They might have, right? Like, yeah. and the biggest things that they did this offseason were retention. Mm-hmm. You know, they retained Bruce Boudreau, and we saw what that team looked like once he came in, substantially better after the coaching change. And they, against all odds, retained JT Miller, who was basically considered to be gone. And then one day they just, oh, we resigned JT right. on a long-term yeah, by deal the way. <laughs> out of nowhere. Um, so good on them. They're kind of running it back. Like you said, a team that was much better in the second half than the first half. See if they can replicate that pace over 82 games or if they're more where they finish, just maybe a little bit more even over 82 games. That brings us to the Vegas Golden Knights. And Vegas is sort of the up upside version of interesting the if in nothing else yeah <laughs> but vegas is another one of those teams where like if 70 percent of the ifs on their sheet go right mm-hmm. they could be a really good team if 30 percent of them go right they could be a really bad team 
it could even it could be closer than that. If sixty percent of the things go right, they could be really really good. If forty five percent of them go <laughs> go yeah. right, they could be really really bad. Like mm-hmm. they have a they pivot on a on a shaky fulcrum. Talk about a range of outcomes. I mean, yeah, that's got to be the widest in the league, right? Vegas. Yeah. It has to be. Yeah. Um, very interesting off season. They, mm-hmm. they make the coaching change. Um, they trade someone who was there since what the first year, the second year, Pacioretty. Yeah, second year. Yeah, for nothing. Mm-hmm. They lose Robin Leonard for nothing. Those moves allow them to get under the salary cap, which is a win in itself for the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, but they lose two key players. You know, they retain some guys, and if everyone is healthy and everyone plays up to par on paper, it's still a very good team. But they were a very good team on paper last year, and we saw it happen. So very wide range of outcomes for another team that we don't like to see outcomes go well for. And and this doesn't necessarily matter. But the fact that Pacioretty was traded for nothing, then it was revealed, would need to go on long-term IR. And then after that, Leonard revealed that he would be going on LTIR, essentially meaning that they didn't have to trade Pacioretty at all. They could have Tampa Bay lightning <laughs> yeah, that thing absolutely. the whole way and gotten yeah. Max Pacioretty as a de facto deadline. Again, not that that necessarily matters. It just suggests at potential, um, I don't even want to necessarily say discord, but it just suggests at less than maximally efficient communications behind the scenes. It almost just like, it's almost like a little bit of a karma thing for the way that they manage the cap and hate to call it that because, you know, Pacioretty by all accounts is like a stand up player and you hate to see him get hurt. But the way that it played out for Vegas was a little bit poetic with how they tried, you know, the, the move at the deadline to try and meet the cap with the Don off that deal getting nixed and then this playing out the way it did a little bit of poetic justice for yeah. the way Vegas has treated the salary cap. It's funny, you know, like my personal instinct is to go, yeah, serves them right. They had it coming. They're all a bunch of bad, terrible people, but that's just because I don't like Vegas. I have no idea if they're bad, terrible people. I don't know if they they're, deserve They're probably it. not. No, probably <laughs> not. But that's why I say at the very least, it just suggests that perhaps poor communication behind the scenes. Uh, that is going to bring us to Edmonton and Calgary, two teams that uh, finished ahead of the Kings in the playoffs or in the standings last year and the playoffs. Um, we'll start with Edmonton. Cassian out, Keith out, Mike Smith out, Jack Campbell in. Is Mike Smith out? Well, I I guess it's not official. I honestly don't know. He's listed on LTIR, right? On Cap Friendly. My understanding is that it was a sort of a wink okay. and a nod. He won't be playing, but he's okay. not retired Got type it. situation. Okay. But I don't. I haven't seen any official yeah. word on that. But Jack Campbell in, mm-hmm. um, and I honestly think that that alone makes them a, a bigger threat than they were last year, at least in my mind. I feel like the saying is about quarterbacks in football, but you can kind of apply it to goalies too. Of like, mm-hmm. if you have two goalies, you have no goalies. In Edmonton, you know, we saw Mike Smith play very well against the Kings in the playoffs, but both goalies played and got pulled several times in the subsequent rounds. You know, if Jack Campbell can be a little bit more of a stabilizing factor, that's a big upgrade for Edmonton, even if not necessarily like, you know, Mike Smith at his best is at that level, but he's older, not as not as consistent maybe as he used to be. So if you can get that stability from Jack Campbell, a good team that got a lot better when they made a coaching change might have gotten better than they were last year because they just about ran everyone else back. That was a core piece for them. And. Jack, I mean, I don't know, I'm not intimately familiar with the locker room of Edmonton, don't know all the players, don't know all their personalities, but we've said it time and time again, Jack Campbell is the Tom Hanks of the hockey world. I can only imagine that that will help that locker room. I mean, just an incredibly well-liked teammate. Mm -hmm. Um, People still talk about him who, you know, worked and played with him here. Um, Great person. Um, so you hope that, that he can be a good fit there because, you know, he's a guy that you root for, right? Like he was a good success story of the Kings, just maybe not when they play the Kings three times a year. Right. That leaves us with the Calgary Flames, the most talked about team of the offseason. Um, Goudreau out, Kachuk out, Kadri, Huberdo, Uyghur in. I think they're going to be better is such a funny word. I don't know that they'll necessarily finish with more points than they did last year but I expect them to be a more well-rounded, completely competitive team than they were last season. We've talked about this a lot, just casually, right? Yeah. Like you take out from a points in points out standpoint, the flames 
brought in less points than they took out with the forwards alone. But yeah, like I, I get it. Um, like I, I personally think the, the the Flames got worse on paper in the offseason because they had that line that was so dominant. But then you saw in the playoffs maybe that, that having that one dominant line wasn't the way to do it. Maybe they are a little bit more of a deeper team or a, a more evenly balanced team this year. You bring in Kadri, who we saw was an elite 2C um, for Colorado in the playoffs. Huberto had an outstanding season, was in the MVP conversations. You know, do those guys maybe make the team different, but stronger one to 20, um, even if not quite as strong at the top as they were last year? Every now and then a team bubbles up and we criticize them for just being one line and a goalie. Mm-hmm. And then they flame out in the playoffs and everybody shrugs and goes, well, you know, you shut that one line. I mean, Edmonton, Toronto, New York, like they're active current teams that are criticized for that. Calgary, I mean, I didn't hear that criticism, but they did have the best line in the NHL. It's and, and a goalie who in the beginning was, of the yeah. regular season was, you know, I don't know how many shutouts did he, he have? He had the shutout year? record through 20 games, right. like of all time. Like it was stupid. And then they ran into Edmonton and Plaza, and that was it. They were done. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, like I said, I don't know if they, if they improved their point total, but I just think they got more diverse. That is the uh, Pacific Division's offseason. Obviously, the Kings made their moves, and we're going to talk about them right now because this is a Kings podcast. Second, yeah. second question we asked at the start of the offseason was, what will the Kings do at the draft? Well, we know what they uh, have done at the draft. We've been talking about it all summer long. They drafted Jack Hughes in the second, Connie, Kenny Connors and Angus Booth in the fourth, Otto Salen in the fifth, Jared Wright and Jack Sparks in the sixth, Caleb Lawrence, Caleb Lawrence excuse me, in the seventh, Um We've talked to Mark Nettie about each one of those guys. We've yep. talked to almost uh, a representative from almost every <laughs> almost. Team. Yeah. Still trying to track down somebody. The St. Michael's buzzers. Yeah. The to most talk elusive about Jack Sparks. team in professional hockey. They are. We're still, we're still efforting that as much as I don't like that word. Uh, so that's what they did at the draft. And we've seen most of those guys at dev camp and we'll see some of them at uh, the rookie faceoff. Next question uh, on the list was, will Adrian Kempe resign? He did a four-year deal, $22 million, 5.5 per year, 10-team no-trade clause the last two years. Looking forward to seeing Adrian Kempe back on the ice in a Kings jersey. Without a doubt, right? Yep. The breakout performer from last year and a contract that I think we talked about at the time felt kind of like a good, a good fit for both sides, right? When you look at his production last year, where he fits in, feels like a good deal that meshes well with the Kings' salary cap situation. Because this is podcasting and we are not always up to date when we record, uh, there's been an update since we recorded the rest of this episode. And that is, of course, that Mikey Anderson signed a one-year contract extension for $1 million. Zach, I think everybody was at least, maybe not surprised is the right word, but caught off guard by the small AAV. I think so, too, Um, which makes it, um, in theory, a really good deal for the Kings. Um, I don't know exactly what I was expecting because when you look at, you know, Mike Anderson, very big part of the team, but he was a restricted free agent without arbitration. So in terms of leverage, it all kind of favored the Kings in that instance. So I'm not sure what I was expecting Mike Anderson to sign, but I certainly wasn't expecting, you know, a one year, $1 million extension on September 10th. You know, maybe if that was where they were going to land, maybe you you see it come earlier, but at the end of the day, um, an important player, locked in for the year for the Kings gives them 365 more days to negotiate, you know, a a different type of deal that maybe ties Anderson to the team longer. Um, And the Kings with a lot more flexibility on that front come next summer. I guess I might've expected a long contract at a low number, a short contract at a medium number. You know, if he signed like one year for 3 million and then you understood like, okay, next summer they'll, sort out if it's going to be slightly higher or slightly longer. I don't think anybody expected one year for basically league minimum. I mean, a million is not actually league minimum, but only, you know, a couple hundred thousand more than the qualifying offer. And obviously it's one way deal. Um, There's no, he's not going to the AHL. So a little bit surprising for sure um, on what it turned out to be. Um, But when you look at how that deal plays into the cap picture for the Kings, it makes it a lot clearer and gives the team a lot more flexibility than say the maybe one year, $2 million deal we might've expected. Yeah. And I want to, you know, we're going to delve into speculation here because why not? 
I want to talk about how this contract compares to the Sean Dursey situation and why Mikey Anderson might have been more comfortable with this kind of contract. Like, we don't know what Sean Dursey is going to sign for at the time of this recording, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't expect it to be one year at $1 million for Sean Dursey. And there are two reasons I think Mikey Anderson's camp might have been comfortable signing this contract. The first being, I think we've seen demonstrated from multiple players now a trust and faith in this front office. So whether it was Cal Peterson signing a three-year deal three years ago where the first year was a two-way deal and the second two years were one-way deals, you know, when he signed that, Jack Campbell was still with the team under contract. And so you understand that that three-year deal structured that way is a, you know, is an agreement to Cal Peterson, like, have faith in us, your time will come. We see deals with TJ Tynan, Jacob Uvarare, not necessarily the same message, but we'll take care of you, help us out on the front end. Philip Deneau comes over in free agency, tells us that, you know, he talked to the front agent, or excuse me, to the front office, and the front office promised him opportunities to play a more offensive game. They followed through on that. Kevin Fiala, the trade, presumably was assisted by the fact that he was willing to sign a long-term extension here, whereas we know that he was not necessarily willing to sign long-term extensions in other markets, so that trade right is able to happen with the Kings. Um, and now Mikey Anderson, we talk about it later in this episode, I think, if I have the timeline correct. You know, We talk about the cap space that will open up for the Kings next offseason. And I would not be the least bit surprised if there is a an informal agreement with Mikey Anderson to help us out on this one year, We'll keep you in house and you will be rewarded for helping us out. Would not surprise me either. Obviously we don't know if that's the case or not, but it's almost, you know, in the NHL, your deal, it's, it's an AAV, it's an average of your deals, but like it wouldn't be surprising if, you know, maybe Mikey Anderson signs a longer term deal at a slightly higher hit than maybe what you'd expect next off season. But if you factor that year, that deal in with what was signed this year, the AAV probably comes out to like what you would expect type thing, but speculation, but yeah, I think you make some good points and wouldn't be surprising, you know, just to, that there's, that there might already be discussions on like, Hey, what might that next deal be with a little bit more term um, for a player that's very highly valued by the Kings. Yeah. And the second reason that he would have, cause to have faith in the front office is because he pl- he has a clearly defined role, right? Like, barring some sort of revolutionary strategy, I think we all expect Mikey Anderson to play number one lefty next side uh, alongside Drew Doughty. Yep. Even if he doesn't, if they're going to try something out, he is the best left defenseman they have. And so, you know, there is there is room for him to trust the organization based on his value to the organization. Whereas Sean Dursey, this has nothing to do with how good either of them are compared to one another or compared to their spot within the league. But Sean Dursey has a lot more competition for the role that he plays. If Mikey Anderson gets a stomach bug or a broken ankle and misses 20 games next year, he's still coming back as the best left defenseman they have, presumably. Um, we talk about this later in the episode, but if Sean Dursey falters early out of the gate, there is Sean Walker, Jordan Spence, Helge Granz, Brant Clark, Drew Doughty, all that play that same role. So Sean Dursey, and it also, you know, he's been here less time. Um, it's a, it's a larger gamble essentially for Sean Dursey to take a, a short term low dollar contract than it is for Mikey Anderson. And again, there's nothing to do with their talent, their skill level. How they compare just has to do with the structure of the team, the depth of their different positions, and the competition level for those spots. You say that, and just got an email, Sean Dersey signs a one-year run. Did you really? No, I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> um, but no, I, I understand the point you're making, um, but I don't I don't think it means Sean Dersey is going to sign a six-year deal. No, no, not um, at all. Because It just means it's a more complicated negotiation. Yeah. It's just a, it's a different player in a different role. Yeah. Um, is, I think the TLDR version of what you just said, and both players have different situations, um, different outlooks, different skill sets, um, and they are different negotiations, not necessarily based off of the other person. Correct. Yeah. No. And that's that's all I was getting at is that it, Mikey Anderson's negotiation 
you know, it took a while, so I imagine it was complex, but I imagine they explored a lot of different options and then came back down to, okay, well, it would really help us out if, and okay, you know, agreement reached. Um, It's going to be a lot more complicated with Sean Jersey. We hope that he'll sign. And uh, that's that. One thing I do want to toss out there, though, just because I'm me and I can't help myself. Um, I threw it out there on Twitter and a couple message boards, and I just want to reiterate it here. Um, I have argued for a while now that trades like the Darcy Kemper trade, which I asked Rob Blake about the day it happened, or maybe the day after, I don't remember. And Rob Blake told me in a public setting with other media around, so I'm not revealing any state secrets or anything, but Rob Blake revealed to me that the Darcy Kemper trade, when it was made, was at least partially uh, done with Darcy Kemper's needs in mind. Darcy Kemper was not going to be retained by the LA Kings at the end of the season. He was a UFA. His career was in a state of redefinition. And trading him to a different team would give him a few months to audition for that team to earn himself a contract for the following season. That's exactly what happened. They traded him to Arizona. If you want to, you can go back and look at it and argue that the return for what Darcy Kemper turned into was disappointing and that was a bad trade. But I would argue, the reason I bring it up, is that when you see Mikey Anderson signing a one-year deal for $1 million, and when you see players signing deals structured in a way, you know, where they get, you know, like Alex Edler, for example, signing a deal that pays him bonuses for next year at a very low threshold. I would argue that that is possible, at least partially, because the front office has made a very clear policy of watching out for players and treating them with respect and doing them and not favors is not the right word I want to use, but being player friendly. And I don't think it's any coincidence that a number of the members of the front office are former players and that they would understand what matters to players and treat them with that kind of respect. And I think the organization is reaping the benefits of those policies. I think that your general point is right. I think that comparing Mikey Anderson's situation to Darcy Kemper's, is a wide leap. I'm, I'm not trying to make a direct leap from point A to point B. I'm just saying I think, you know, it's like when you, you know, it's like a butterfly flapping its wings, right? That well, whole thing, you know. did make that leap. Well, <laughs> I. But your point is is right in that um, it seems like there is some, you know, level of, we'll say, trust and mutual respect shown in those situations. And that's obviously a good thing. Yeah, and and the reason the tweet might appear to make that leap is because you're only allowed so many characters, and I'm not going to go ahead and like you know go back and cover the entirety of Rob Blake's um, career as general manager of the LA Kings and compare it to previous general managers. But I I believe that that is why. And the reason I started with the Kemper one is because that's a fight that I've been having with people over the last few months. Somebody brought up you know worst trades, and I have always pushed back on that one being it. And that was the reason why. And now we see this, what I believe is evidence. Uh, and there are other steps to fill in in between there, but just wanted to toss that out because that's what I believe. That's what I believe. Anyway, now we are going to take you back to uh, the previously recorded part of this episode. And uh, hopefully there'll be another insert <laughs> over the next <laughs> eight hours uh, talking about Sean Dersey. But for now, back to the episode. Uh, next up was how will the left side of the defense evolve? This one can't really fully be answered yeah. until Mikey Anderson is signed. Um, but presently, Bjornfoot, Muvarari, and Edler are candidates to play for the LA Kings on the left side. Mikey Anderson, presumably, when he signs a new contract, will join that list. Um, I know we talked about it a little bit previously, but I'd like to just sort of refresh the conversation. Uh, Alex Edler's contract, um, $750,000 this year with the possibility for an additional $750,000 in bonuses. And those bonuses are, I think it was, it's games played. It's and very low. Yeah. It's, it's like 10 and 20 or 20 and 30. Very the, low. Metrics. The peak is like 40, right? Yeah, in at, order to earn the full $750,000. Yeah. I think it's even less. Yeah. yeah, it's low. Now, I did not ask anybody from the front office, but I asked around the office to people that I thought would know how to interpret those contracts because mm -hmm. my interpretation of that contract was he will absolutely be playing as many games as he's healthy for. And that is why the contract was structured to pay off those bonuses at a low number. I think that the bonuses are in place because 
it could benefit the Kings from a salary cap point of view exclusively. Um, the way that I understand bonuses is that if if you hit the mark and you are under the cap, that will count against your team this year. But if not, they roll over right. to next year as it would with an entry-level player. So it just gives the Kings more flexibility. Um, right. Even at $1.5 million straight up, that contract feels like a steal when you look at his advanced metrics. Um, they're like top of the league good in certain categories. Um, so it just gives the Kings more flexibility. Like if the Kings are tight against the cap, which, you know, once they get Anderson and Dursey locked in, they, they'll be pretty tight. Yes, they will. It gives them the flexibility to potentially roll over some of that cap hit the bonuses. If Edler hits them to next year, when the Kings have a little bit more flexibility against the cap, I personally think that's the structure of this deal. I don't think it's like, Oh, we're only going to play Alex Edler 39 games. Right. To not hit. I think <laughs> right. it's, it's more from a cap point of view. I think, like you said, they're going to play him. Yeah, well, that so that's yeah, that's what I'm getting at is that they it's it is a 1.5 million dollar deal. It's just 50 percent of it will be paid next year. Incidentally, one you know one million dollars and change and nine you know and two hundred thousand uh, dollars come off the dead cap books because Dion Phaneuf's buyout ends this offseason and Mike Richards buy uh, uh, whatever settlement money decreases by 200,000. So the Kings will be picking up 1.2 million in cap space this off season. And if they play Edler 40 games, that 1.2 will be reduced down to 500,000. But like I said, the, yeah. the low threshold for, for meeting those bonuses suggests to me that they anticipate him being in the lineup. Completely agree. Right. Okay. Um, and then Muvari and Bjornfoot. This one is, you know, I because I hear tons of conversation about, you know, who will start the season in Ontario. And the only reason the only reason in my mind that it is a conversation is that Bjornfoot would not need to clear waivers and Muvarari would. Mm -hmm. If if waivers didn't enter into the equation, I would look at games played in the NHL and assume that Bjornfoot was a lock because of his experience. Mm -hmm. But I suppose nothing's written in stone. It isn't. Um and you also have, you know, I, I think we're talking left side of the defense, not left shot D. Right. So I think that this conversation also should include Sean Walker. Yeah. Um, and maybe even a guy like Sean Dersey. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, I think the Kings will heavily explore playing a right shot D on the left side. Um, my personal thought would be that Sean Walker would be the first person used in that role. He has played the left in the past, has some familiarity with Matt Roy, um, could be a way to move some of that wealth of talent on the right side over to the left um, and give, you know, more of a mobile player, the opportunity to play a little bit higher in the lineup um, in Sean Walker, who's always kind of been relegated to the third pair because of Dowdy and Roy. Um, but yeah, I think with Mo Verari and Bjornfoot, it creates a little bit of a training camp competition, right? And that's a good thing. Um, we talk about it a lot. A lot of people, want to lock in the roster on September 22nd, but then like, what's the point of the three weeks of camp when they play games and practice and earn spots on the team? So I think, yeah, a guy like Toby, like he was in the lineup 70 games in a row last year, just about. And then he found himself on the outside looking in, in the playoffs, you know, and Mo Verara started in the AHL played extremely well. So those guys will be in the competition for spots for sure. They both could wind up on the roster, you know, one or two of them could wind up, in the AHL, and that's you know part of being on the bubble and part of training camp. I'm going to expand this conversation into our next question, which was how does the right side of the defense shape up? Mm -hmm. And for the purposes of this conversation, I'm going to talk about Anderson and Jersey as if they have already signed sure. their contracts. At the end of the playoffs, when Rob Blake spoke to us, he said at that point, Mata didn't have a contract. Yep. Edler didn't have a contract. Uh, Muvarari had not been you know, given his contract, Mikey Anderson was a question mark. And at that moment in time, Rob Blake said out loud, we expect to play a right shot defenseman on yeah. the left side next year. Explicitly. Yes. Yeah. Since then, Edler was brought back. Mm -hmm. Muvrari was extended. Yeah. Bjornfoot, uh, you know. Constant. Right. Yeah. And then we assume Mikey Anderson will get his contract. If they have those four guys as options on the left side, mm -hmm. I would be very surprised if we actually saw a right shot defenseman playing significant time on the left side, not that it couldn't happen, but, and we also haven't talked about Brant Clark. Mm -hmm. Now what I would 
and we'll talk about the forwards in a bit. But in a, in a world where the forward math is a little bit different, I would not be surprised if the team started with eight defensemen on the roster, four left shot, four right shot, and if they didn't rotate out one pair, right? If they didn't look for stability in pairs, and rather than take one guy out of the lineup, right? So Brant Clark has nine games to play before the first year of his entry-level contract mm-hmm. is officially activated. They could, you know, whether it was Muvrari or Edler or Bjornfoot, whoever it was, if they found one stable partner to play with Brant Clark mm-hmm. for nine games, that would give them the opportunity to give Brant Clark his nine games without mixing and matching D pairs. And mm-hmm. then once the World Juniors uh, camps opened up, you could send Brant Clark off to World Juniors. You'd then have seven defensemen, four left, three right, uh, or no. But that also Sorry. doesn't solve your problem. Yeah, did I, I feel like if, I left somebody out there. If Brent Clark is your eighth. <laughs> oh, yeah, now because now I'm thinking about Then it doesn't solve your right. problem. He just becomes your 23rd guy in theory, right? Because then you still have to – you still have one too many for the blue line um, in that scenario. Well, yes, and and even as I was saying that, I'm realizing that in my head I'm talking about nine different defensemen. So I'm going to lay out the defensemen that we're talking about and back that up a bit. So we've got Mikey Anderson, Drew Doughty, Tobias Bjornfoot, Matt Roy, Alex Edler, Sean Walker – Jacob Muvarari, Sean Dersey, and Brant Clark. That's and, nine. I was and wrong. It would be if you're you got to throw Jordan Spence into that conversation as well. I mean, sure, guy who has 20 games in the NHL has to enter training camp ahead of Brant Clark in the pecking order. Oh, 100, percent without a doubt. It might yeah. like at least to to start things off. Like this guy played was raved about by coaches. He played in the playoffs. Um, he he's a guy who. Because of his contract, he's basically, by most, been already assigned to Ontario. Mm-hmm, including me. Yeah, and it, it makes sense. But this is a guy who has outperformed expectations all year last year and could easily do so again. And I am I am higher on Jordan Spence than I am on probably any other prospect in you know with less than 40 NHL games played for the LA Kings. So that's a lot of defensemen. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm trying to weed the phrase too many guys out of my vocabulary. I do it. I will simply say the Kings have a tremendous amount of decisions to make, and I wouldn't be surprised if the solutions to some of those decisions are uh, are are news. Perhaps right. a little more outside the box than yeah. you might think. Yeah. I, I think we probably have – I think I, we definitely have different views on how they're going to do it, but – that's how they're going to, that's what the camp's for, right? Yeah, like, no, absolutely. Will they, you know, maybe, maybe Sean Walker looks a hell of a lot better on the right than he does on the left and what they wanted to do doesn't work. Or maybe like you said, they have four potentially, you know, very solid options on the left. Maybe they do something different. So it, it'll be interesting um, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. And I would not be surprised if it got truly unpredictable and we wound up with something like Walker and Dowdy on the top pair. You know Anderson and Roy, mm-hmm. Edler and Durs. Like who knows? Yeah, um, it could be it could be bonkers. All right, so that is uh, you know an overlook of the defense. We'll get further into that when training camp opens up and everything. Next question is which RFA forwards will be given opportunities? Gabriel Velarde, Leish Anderson, Jared Anderson, Dolan, uh, Carl Grundstrom were all qualified and brought back. Mm-hmm. Um, Brandon Lemieux was not, but then was. <laughs> Not qualified, right. but resigned. But yeah. resigned. Yeah. And uh, at the moment, I think we're probably going to tweak this conversation as well. Let's just talk about the forwards because the number three question was which UFA veterans will be retained. And between the defense and the forwards, we're going to yeah talk about we're all. We're going to knock into that for sure. So I mentioned to you on the last episode, I sort of, you know, we were giving examples of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I said there are 16 forwards fighting for 14 spots. And I said, I have my personal opinion about mm-hmm. who should go where. But let's just go through the forwards. Um, Fiala, Kopitar, Kempe, Moore, Dino, Arvidsson, Ayafalo, Kaliev, and Lazat, I would expect to right. be in the lineup every game they're healthy for. Yeah. Especially, I mean, th- those nine, barring something at way outside the box, feel like they will be right on the roster in the lineup on opening night. And I would assume, based on the size of the contract, that Grunstrom and Lemieux would also be given every opportunity mm-hmm. to be in every game that they are healthy for. And if not in the lineup, 
healthy scratch. Yes, like exactly. you know, part of the fourteen. Um, right, feels pretty pretty safe in yeah. saying that. I think. And the reason we say that, I, I this is my thought process anyway, is that Carl Grunstrom was signed to what one point three. If you don't want Carl Grunstrom on your roster, or if you are not sure mm-hmm. that Carl yeah. Grunstrom is one of the twenty, you know, fourteen forwards that you are going to go into every mm-hmm. game with, then why give him one point three yeah. million dollars when you have? And both those guys were fair to say they were question marks last year, and both earned the deals they got with their play, right? 100%. Like I don't think any of us necessarily expected what we got from Carl Grunstrom in the playoffs, but he was invaluable in that series. And Brendan Lemieux all year was a steady consistent guy on the fourth line so both those guys merited what they got and it'd be you'd be hard pressed to see a a way forward with all of those guys healthy where they're not on your opening night 14 that's 11 yep number 12 is a guy that you and i both concede there are options but based on his draft stock based on his profile based on his progress quentin byfield i would expect to be on the roster when the season starts I would expect him to be on the roster as well, but he's not a lock. No. You know, he's one of, like you said, 11 probably are. The other five, six guys are in competition. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have to think that if everything goes according to plan, he is in your opening night lineup, but that's why you have the preseason. I, I would wager that he probably has the longest leash of the last five guys we're talking about on our on our list. That's 12 forwards. I said there are 16 guys fighting for 14 spots. So the last four guys that we're going to mention are essentially battling it out to be the final two forwards on the roster. And it's Gabriel Velarde, Leish Anderson, Rasmus Kupari, and Jared Anderson Dolan. Rasmus Kupari is the only player of those four who would not need to clear waivers in order to be assigned to Ontario. But Gabriel Velarde, Leish Anderson, and Jared Anderson Dolan, the 2017 draft class for the LA Wall, except for Mikey Anderson. <laughs> um, that, that who's going to be the bottom pair on the, or how the defense is going to yeah. shake out and which of those forwards starts the season is going to be the, the story of training. Camp. And if the Kings chose to go the route that you thought they might go, it's three of those players. Would yes. Not. So it's, you know, you're, it's not necessarily, it's just changing the problem. Like you, mm-hmm. it would be moving a different player onto waivers potentially. So, yeah. Um, that'll be certainly something to watch. Um, and you can't discredit someone who isn't in that mix, you know, working their way in. It's hard to put any expectations on an Alex Turcotte because of what he's coming off of. But it wouldn't shock me if Samuel Fagimo came into camp and blew the doors off everyone. I think he did that a little bit last year, was still sent down, but maybe works his way into that mix or who knows. There's a few options of guys who could do that. Um, it'll be really interesting for sure to see which of those players make the roster, which of those players, you know, are either assigned to Ontario or placed on waivers. Cause there's going to be some, some battles for spots and you could find pros and cons for all probably five of those guys on the, the bubble quote unquote. In years past, there were overly simplistic solutions that would fall strictly down the, the line of who's waiver eligible and who isn't right this year. That is not available. Somebody, mm-hmm. and again, it's not that they have too many guys. It's just that they have decision, difficult decisions to make. And, you know, we've said this year in and year out. Just because you place a guy on waivers in yeah. training camp doesn't mean he's going to get taken. No right. matter how, how how no matter how high his profile, no matter how high I Kings fans are on express him. how many times yeah. I've been told you can't put this guy on waivers because he will 100% be claimed only for that player to pass through. Right. Because my guess is going to be that 31 other people are hearing the same thing said, and there's only so many spots. Mm -hmm. So guys do pass through waivers and they can come right back up. Like it, it happens. Yeah. At some point, the team will have to make final decisions on every player. Mm -hmm. That's just the nature of the industry. Um, we talked in the opening bit about the teams in the Pacific division. And, you know, if all of the things go right for, you know, for this team or that team, the Kings now have, it feels to me so many options mm-hmm. that there are multiple ways now for things to go. Right. So let's just say Arvidsson, you know, isn't ready to go right out of training camp. Cause he's still recovering from the surgery that he had at the end of the season. 
Well, now you have an opportunity for a right-hand shot to play alongside Philip Deneau because we know he likes having a right-hand shot, whether it's Gabriel Velarde or Rasmus Kupari, who are both right-hand shots. Or maybe it's... They say, Phil, too bad. You're playing right. with Arthur Kaliev. And, yeah. you know, that line worked. and then it, But then it opens up a spot for exactly. one of those guys or Carl Grunstrom to play higher in the lineup. It, you're right. Yeah. Like, there are multiple multiple ranges of outcomes for the Kings that could lead to success than there definitely were in the past. Yeah. And, and hopefully the training camp will give them an opportunity and hopefully they'll take it to discover chemistry mm-hmm. combinations that, yeah. you know, we didn't anticipate. And we will get into that in a little bit. Uh, the next question, will the team make any trades to upgrade the roster? They yeah. will. Yeah, they did. They did. <laughs> um, and this, I guess this is where we'll get into the line combinations. They traded uh, first the 19th overall pick in the first round of this year's draft and Brock Faber, a right shot. D prospect for Kevin Fiala from the Minnesota Wild. And every conversation I ever, well, not every conversation, the vast majority of the conversations I hear anticipate that Kevin Fiala, Andre Kopitar, and Adrian Kempe, at least to start the season, will be the Kings' top line. Mm-hmm. Far be it for me to question common sense, and uh, but I don't like that line. I'm not sure it would work, and I would, uh, at least to start, I would try something different if I were the head coach of the LA Kings. Okay. I, I think that's what will be started. I think you're right. Um, <laughs> whether I, you uh, – yeah. it's, it's the most obvious fit with mm-hmm. if you're saying that the second line – is a staple and everyone is healthy and hundred percent ready to go. It's the most obvious fit. Um, but it doesn't mean that's how you have to go. Yep. Um, the Kings could deploy a more balanced approach across three lines. They could break up the Deneau line that was so successful last year. They could go a lot of different ways. I think it's the way that they will start whether or not that line actually works um, remains to be seen. I mean, last year, you know, Victor Arvidsson didn't quite fit with Kopitar at the beginning of the year. He was more effective playing with Deneau and, we won't really know Fiala's best role until we see him, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe they he clicks so amazingly with Kopitar and Kempe that it's great, and maybe they don't. Um, but something we're out, we'll, we'll find out. Yeah, the perfect world is that Fiala, Kempe, and Kopitar form an unbelievable trio, right. and right. that you yeah. know, I just, I am, I don't like to label myself a pessimist because I don't believe it. I have been accused of being a pessimist <laughs> and a cynic. I've just seen lots of players come in and the line was, oh, well, player X, Kopitar, and player Y will be the de facto Kings top line. And then 20 games later, it just yeah. isn't. Whether it was Victor Arvidsson or Milan Lucic or Marion Gabrick. Now, Gabrick and Kopitar did have chemistry and did have success, but Gabrick was not healthy enough. It's not a video game, right? Like yeah. just because you put three guys with 88 overall ratings together and you're controlling them doesn't mean they're going to play well in real life. Maybe that line works, but maybe it doesn't. Um, I don't think Todd McClellan has been shy about changing it. What doesn't work. Um, last year he found a couple of lines that did, but he also juggled, you know, a member on lines that weren't working too. So I, I don't think he'll just keep, pounding away with the same thing if it's not working. Um, but I also think you you bring in a guy who was over a point per game last year. You sign him to an almost $8 million co- long-term contract. He deserves the first shot at playing on the first line. And if it doesn't work, you're restructured from there. 100%. Um, I, I, like I said, I, it's not, not what I would do, but there's a reason that I am <laughs> uh, the host of All the Kings Men and yeah. not, not the head coach <laughs> of the LA Kings. Um while we're on the subject, though, I also I've heard a lot of people and I included, you know, myself, I have my roster projection. I have mm-hmm. I have followed by Phil and Kaliev as the third line. I am thinking of changing it. Not that it means anything if I change it. Yeah. Um, what would, would your be, first line be? What would your top nine be? Well, all right, let's do it. Then. Yeah. Because like, uh, if, if that's your third. Are line, we assuming Arvidsson at full health? Assuming everyone available full health. OK. Um, if that's your third line, I'd be interested to know what your top two would be. To start camp. Yeah. To start camp, I would go with uh, Kempe, Kopitar, and Arvidsson. Okay. More Deneau and Fiala. Mm-hmm. I follow Byfield and Grunstrom. Lemieux. I thought Laz- you said Kaliev. Lemieux, Lazad, and Kaliev. Okay. I would put, I would reunite that fourth line because mm-hmm. it was, when it was good, it was great. It was good. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Um, I think Byfield and Grunstrom play a more complimentary game or at least i'd want to find out if they Mm -hmm. if i was right in that assumption and i 
don't love Kopitar and Kempe together necessarily, but adding in what I think Victor Arvidsson, I always hear people talk about Victor Arvidsson's shoot first mentality and, you know, his play, you know, up and down the ways. I think Victor Arvidsson is incredibly underrated as a playmaker and mm-hmm. as a. I think both are true. Like, yes, I, for he sure. Does have a no, he absolutely first, yeah. has a shoot first mentality. But I just don't think it's look the at strongest the plays part he of made his game. with with those with you know he can make plays yeah. too. He's not a just volume shooter who can't do anything else. He can make plays. Yeah, I believe that he drives play for sure in a in a way that, and I think part of the reason that Moore, Deneau, and Arvidsson were so effective is that all three of those guys drive play, and they all drive it incredibly effectively. And so all of a sudden, you know, it was like the plus five bonus on a you know I heard somebody else talking about that the other day, but like that's what I think makes that line so incredible. They all they have active sticks, they create turnovers, they're yeah. they're making all the right little decisions. Mm-hmm. Kopitar and Kempe. Kempe doesn't drive play. Kempe drives Kempe. Um, and I don't mean that to be he's, dis- he's dismissive. He's the only one on the Kings who can just create those. Right. Something out of nothing. Break Like, he's elite at doing that. But and, I'm not sure. A lot, you know, yeah. When he does it. And he's an incredible weapon, but I'm not sure that he's the type of player who can turn his line mates into weapons. Um, which I think we kind of saw when he was playing with Lazat and Wagner. That line was really great at controlling play, mm. but not great at capitalizing on scoring. If Fiala, from what I've heard, I confess I haven't watched a ton of Fiala, yeah. but Fiala had, a, like, what did he have, 85 points? 50-something. Yeah, 50 assists. of those yeah. assists. Yeah. Um, we know what Kopitar's strengths are. Mm-hmm. We know what Kempe's strengths are. If you add a guy like Fiala, who is dynamic in, in apparently every aspect of the game, yeah. um, if you add Fiala to Deneau and Moore... I feel like that replaces what Arvidsson brings. And if you add Arvidsson to Kopitar and Kempe, suddenly Arvidsson's playmaking and his mm. play driving and his, you know, I, I don't really know what the word I'm looking for is. I mean, you don't even have to, right? Like you can, yeah. there's a reason you, it's not out of the, it's not crazy. What you're right. Proposing, and right? Uh, like, when it comes to Byfield, uh, right. Exactly. When it comes to Byfield, Grunstrom and I follow, we've heard people talk about Grunstrom's, praising him for a straight line play straight mm-hmm. to the net. Um, I think the best version of Quentin Byfield is a more skilled version of that straight line player. There's no reason to just assume to that Carl Grunson will play on the fourth line. No. Right. Like, which is, I think what a lot of people do, but yeah, he could easily be a third or higher line player to. And you and I were asked, we appeared on uh was the young guns podcast, I think. Yeah. And you were asked about the third or fourth line, but they didn't say who they were talking about. They That's just used the, thing, the third yeah. or fourth line, and you very correctly pointed out, you. I think they we should assume they were talking about Lazat, and or no, they were talking about Byfield on the third line, right? But they, you pointed out that Lemieux, Lazat, and Kaliev, at various times, was the team's third line, just by minutes played. Yeah, right? exactly. Like they, they played the third most minutes. They were trusted. Yeah. in certain situations. So yeah. So I don't. I don't think putting Kaliev with Lazat and Lemieux should be considered. You know. A failure to progress um, for Galiev, and you, if you give him power play minutes, and mm-hmm. you know, so that's that's what I would do. But that's just me. Yeah. It's a good good time to go into that, and yeah. And then the final question: uh, Will the team seek to sign any external free agents to upgrade the roster? Not really. I, they just didn't have the room, right? Yeah. Like the big move that the team made at the time, we the Fiala trade was not done. Mm-hmm. So the Kings had more than enough cap space to externally look into free agents. They could have instead of could they have signed, for example, Johnny Goudreau? Mm-hmm. Yes, they could have before the Fiala trade. After the trade, no, they couldn't have. They didn't have the room without moving other players. Um, so I think they made their move via trade with the Fiala move, not via. Free yeah, all the free agent, all the external free agent moves they made were to shore up Ontario. You know, they right. signed Phoenix Copley, they signed Toby Paquette Bisson. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's it, right? You know, re-signed like a TJ Tynan type player. But right. Yeah, they, no, no. Every more new player that, that came yeah. in. Yeah. Could they still add a veteran around the league minimum? Yes. Um, it just forces someone else out. So they, yes. they could, you know, bring in a a training camp PTO or a league minimum range veteran to perhaps bolster the bottom of the lineup. They could do that, but that would probably be the extent of it without moving others out. Yeah. So let's talk about the flexibility. Cause we talked about other teams, 
you know, that, that being the big um, hurdle. And ultimately, you know, I was fighting with some people about this online. Ultimately, that's the, that is the problem that Rob Blake inherited. I mean, that, in a salary cap world, flexibility is your number one, you know, antagonist. Yeah. Um, and, and ultimately the Kings downfall from cup contention to the bottom of the standings had more to do with flexibility than anything else. Mm -hmm. Right. You make one bad move, you can survive it. If you make five bad moves, you paint yourself into an incredibly tiny corner. It's not necessarily even bad. Like it's moves that don't work. Immediate thinking too, right? Like a lot of the Kings made a lot of moves. Some were bad, but some were to help the team in 2014 mm-hmm. at the expense of the team in 2018. Yep. And there, a lot of that was inherited by the current regime. Right. And it's one of the reasons that I like the job that Rob Blake has done and am willing to be more patient, you know, in this cup drought than the pre, you know, the previous yeah. one. Um, because. Well, this yes, one's only uh, eight years long. No, not 45. 45. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, Kevin Fiala signs a long-term deal, and presumably he will be the player that he's being paid to be. But every other player, you know, even Victor Arvidsson, two years, 4.25. It's great. Um, you know, Jonathan Quick's contract maligned for years. Never, I never had a problem with it, but one Was year left on it. Yeah, by some yeah. people. Some Anything, other. you could could have maligned the player for not making more money over the course of that deal. Well, I mean, I think his was one of the last. He signed like a ten year yeah, deal, right? I and, think his was one of the the last yeah. allowed cap circumventing yeah. deals. But because it was five, you know, it was considered an overpayment oh, by yeah. some, but not a great. Yeah. You know, it wasn't twelve years at ten. And he years. also, if I believe, signed before the cap really yep. went up. So that deal only got probably better with time, right? Like he probably could have made more money had he signed yeah. shorter deals. If you look at like. The whole course of the contract. Well, that's going to be the fascinating thing moving forward and yeah. why I'm sort of glad that Rob Blake has structured the contracts the way he has because we see it now in other sports. Signing a long-term deal at, at a higher amount to bring down the low AAV mm-hmm. benefits the club yeah. and theoretically benefits the player only because these are contact sports where people can get hurt. and so signing, security. Yeah, so yeah. signing a long-term deal protects you against injury. That's the only benefit to a player, right? In a in a world where players try to seek to maximize their earning potential, you sign one year deals for the rest of your career, and someone is going to do that one day, right? A superstar is going to take a higher AV with lesser term and bet on himself. Austin Matthews has come the closest, right? He's got a five year deal which is short term. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember how old he'll be when he reaches unrestricted free agent status. The but... guy who flirted with it was Taylor Hall. Yes. He signed a one year. What was it? $9 million deal with the Sabres, but then he committed to Boston. Mm-hmm. I get why you don't do that too, because maybe you like somewhere you want to be in that location. I get it. Um, and you're willing to take the security over potential maximum earnings. And like you said, injury happens and it could kind of screw you over, but Eventually, someone will go that route. I think Austin Matthews is the leading candidate to do it because he's got two years left on his deal mm-hmm. at eleven million six hundred forty thousand two hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, he's already earned that much for three years prior, yeah. and he was born. Where's his birthday? September seventeenth, nineteen ninety-seven. So he's about to turn twenty-five. Yeah. So he'll be twenty-seven. Yeah. When his the first year of his next contract kicks in, yeah. I imagine he'll get an insane amount of money. Yeah. But as we said, he's already earned $11 million for three years. He'll earn it for the next two years. So he'll have $50 million in the bank. Yeah. At that point, you can afford to gamble yeah. on yourself. You know, like Austin he, Matthews could sign a one-year deal for $13 yeah. million, knowing full well that the next year he could turn around and sign another contract for $13 million. And if he was to get injured or have a bad year, well, he's got $50, $60 million in the bank. And he's good enough to probably still get paid very well off one injury. Yeah. I think, so. uh, especially as the cap starts to rise, the important number to look at is not the cap hit. It's the cap percentage. Right. So will a player like that say, hey, my I could max out at a one-year deal at $13 million today, but in two years, I could take up the same percentage of the cap for $14 million. Yep. And will a player go that route? I would love to see it from an entertainment point of view and from a player yeah. potentially making – Money point of view. I do want to 
push back a little on the notion of the cap rising because obviously the cap will go up. Mm -hmm. But I understand a world where the NFL and the NBA continue to sign increasingly outrageous contracts as streaming options open up Mm -hmm. and new markets open up and more eyeballs watch these sports. Yeah. Hockey has theoretically more room to grow than any other sport. But in order for the cap to go up significantly, Mm -hmm. it's going to have to grow significantly. And I believe it already has. But the only reason that it hasn't gone up significantly is because of the revenue sharing due to COVID. Right. Which set back the players several years. But the gap, I guess what I'm... Because hockey generated revenue is at an all-time high. What what was it just prior to the, the COVID shutdown? I don't know the specifics. Right. I just, you know, I was, you listen to the state of the union type thing. Right. And I, I think too, like significantly doesn't mean it's going to double, right? right. Like it, it's going to go up more than the 1 million that it has been going up. So this is not official in any way, shape or form, but a quick Google search reveals that. Usually the best way yeah, to define information. That in the, that basically it hovered around 3 million for a few years. It crept into the fours and was up into 5 billion 2018 and 19. Mm-hmm. Compared to 20 billion, 30 billion, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is for the NBA and then the NFL is, you know, just all the money in the world. Yeah. Um, like last season, the NFL, the NHL was well under the fives. Yes. P- yeah. Before the COVID. No, like oh, 21, 22. Okay. What was it last year? 5.3. Okay. According to the athletic, which All is right. usually okay. reliable. Fair enough. Um, so that's 5.3. Now that is with, and I, again, I don't have any numbers to back this up. It's just my hunch. Um, that's based on two massive expansion into two massive markets, Vegas and Seattle. And then the continued growth of expansion markets in Columbus, Nashville, you know, Dallas, Carolina, like all the markets that expanded in the 90s. The longer those teams exist, the more opportunity there is for fans of those in those markets and in surrounding areas. Right. Like if you were if you definitely a part of it, I I, my hunch is that it's a huge part of it. Again, don't have anything to back that up, but. What's the population of Vegas? It's, you know, know, it's a lot. It's one of the fastest growing cities in the country. All Mm -hmm. of a sudden they get a team. The team has a tremendous amount of success. Suddenly there's an entirely new set of merchandise, tickets, you know, everything else that drives hockey related revenue. Mm -hmm. So the reason I push back a little bit on the on the rapid rise of the cap, not that it won't go up, Mm -hmm. but there is still issues of um, escrow. That the, you know, like part of the inflation is, or part of the escalation of the cap is inflated by the players' union demanding that they, you know, that they do that. Um, but also, I just sort of, anti- unless the league is going to start getting ludicrous with expansion, which is entirely possible, mm-hmm. I wouldn't expect the kind of cap inflation that we have seen in the NBA and the NFL. Not that you're suggesting there is, but I've mm-hmm. heard other people talk about I it, think- and I just the revenue increases already merit a cap increase that is relatively sizable, but it hasn't happened because of the revenue lost during COVID. Right. The NHL signed a new TV deal last year that heavily played into the revenue increases. Uh, The expansion definitely played into the revenue increases, Mm -hmm. new league wide partners, new sponsorship opportunities for teams, helmet, Jersey, all play into the increase in revenue. Um, it also depends, like, what do you define as substantial? Like, like it's not going to be absurd, but it'll probably be reasonable to, like... And the, and the good, the best part for the Kings is that they're fine if the cap doesn't go up a cent. Right. They're still in a very good place. Um, so anything else is gravy and would just allow them to do even more with the situation that they've set up for themselves. This is the uh, season finale. So uh, the season premiere will be Thursday. I'm going to pull up my calendar here. The next... Season of All the King's Men will officially begin on uh, September 15th. We'll have a lot of new stuff uh, to debut on the podcast, and I'm going to tease one of them right now. Okay. And I'm going to ask you, listening to this episode, if you've stuck with us this far, go ahead and submit the most boring sentence you can think of. Uh, Go ahead and tweet it at Zach or me, or, you know, send me an email 
kingsmenpodcast at gmail.com. DM me on Instagram. However it is that you find me and communicate with me. I want to hear the most boring sentence you can find. And, like, please not a full paragraph. No, like, no outrageously long sentence. Most boring headline. Yeah. Like, most boring headline, yeah, sentence. Yeah. If you work, you know, if you're a CPA and you think you've got the most boring sentence, uh, hit us with it. And, uh, and we'll tell you what that's all about on our next episode. For now, thanks for listening. I am Jesse Cohen. That has been Zach Dooley. Talk to you soon, Kings fans.